0: Welcome back, and welcome to the interview portion of our program. My name is David Frayner. I'm here with Arnie Alpert for the interview portion, and thanks for saying for the discussion. Arnie. we have a lot to talk about, and I want to jump right in to any additional information about the status of the uh, veto override. Well, again, the legislation passed uh, overwhelmingly in the House and
1: Senate earlier this year. Uh, the governor vetoed the bill as he said he would. That was no surprise to anybody that he did that. Uh, and it takes two thirds majority in the House and two thirds majority in the Senate in order for that to take place. So the vote in the House was last week, and we got two thirds plus one. Uh, and uh, the vote will be in the Senate this coming Thursday. So we,
0: we are, are again,
1: we are hopeful that we will have the 16 votes. We had 17 votes the first time around, so we can afford to lose one. And we can't afford to lose, too. But if that takes place, if the senators hold firm and vote on the override consistent with what they said they believed about abolishing the death penalty, uh, then New Hampshire will no longer have a death penalty on the books come Friday.
0: Well, <laughs> if the veto override goes through and the uh, bill is passed, what are the next... Uh, Particularly, what as a practical matter, what happens next after that? Well, as
1: a practical matter, what happens next is that if if anybody commits one of the crimes that's listed in the capital murder statute, uh, it will not be an option for the state to seek the death penalty.
0: So once the override is done. Once the override is
1: done. That's right. Right now, if those crimes are committed uh, again, the state can charge somebody with with. First-degree murder, if if the situation merits, they can charge them with capital murder. If it's capital murder, uh, it goes through a two-phase trial. First, there's what they call the guilt or innocence phase, and then there's the sentencing phase. Uh, So that basically wouldn't happen. Uh, There would still be the possibility, and that anybody who is convicted of any of the crimes that are currently... Punishable under the capital murder statute, they would be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility possibility of parole, which is already the sentence for first degree murder as well, and has been uh, for uh, some number of decades. Great. So that's that's where we're that's where we're at. So, in one level, it doesn't really make that much difference because we hardly ever have a capital crime that takes place, or someone that's charged with a capital crime. On another level, it makes a tremendous amount of difference, uh, On a, not just for New Hampshire, to be moving towards greater respect for human rights and human dignity and fairness in the judicial process and respect for life, but it also makes a difference in a country that is wrestling with this, and it also makes a difference on the global level, where people in the the global or the what's it called the World Coalition Against the Death Penalty will be cheering us on and the lights will be turned on in the Vatican uh, when New Hampshire Is that right? ab- abolishes the death no penalty. Kidding. Yeah. Wow. So. <clears throat> so people have their eyes on will have their eyes on us on Thursday. And we'll be the
0: last state in New England. Uh, by far. Yeah, we're we're the last one by some time. So. so used to that. And I sort of got ahead of myself because I really want to say How deeply I appreciate your story. It's extraordinarily moving, as I think we all agree. And uh, you and I have chatted a little bit about, and you alluded to this or spoke about directly, the importance of stories and storytelling in the whole process. I wonder if you'd say some more.
1: I would say when I'm thinking about it, that that's really what has made it. Now over time, again, starting with the story of Rennie Cushing, talking about the murder of his father in the family home and how Rennie reacted to that. And how, you know, starting with somebody coming up to him and saying, I hope they fry the guy. And, you know, and Rennie realizing that this person was meaning well. That this was an old family friend who thought he was saying the right thing. And Rennie realizing, like, I can't, no, that's not what I want. I don't want this guy who took my father away from me. I don't want him to take my values away from me also. We're not better off if we kill people who kill. We're better off if we do if we do something else. So Rennie's story starting, but then other people being able to step forward and tell the story and say, I'm, I'm Carol Stomaticus and my father was murdered in his furniture store and I'm against the death penalty and I'm Bess Clesson Landis and my mom was raped and murdered when I was a little girl and they never caught the person who did it and I still to this day am traumatized by that and then my mother left me without saying goodbye. But... I am against the death penalty. And other people stepping forward, Andrea LeBlanc saying, my husband was on one of the planes that flew into the World Trade Tower on September 11th, and he was against the death penalty, and I'm against the death penalty. And she's a member of an organization called 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows that campaigns all over the world uh, for, for peace and for more social justice. And is able to come forward. And when she tells her story, when people... Say, the death penalty is reserved for the worst of the worst. And Andrew LeBlanc says, my husband was killed in the 9-11 terrorist attack. I'm against the death penalty. That carries weight with our legislators.
0: One of the reasons that all of us on the True Tales Live production crew do what we do is that we believe so strongly in the power of stories to unite us, to build community among diverse people and uh, in some important ways to affect meaningful social change, yeah. and your story just demonstrates that yeah. absolutely um, it 's absolutely critical because and I think part of the reason for that, Arnie, is that stories as the ones you've were telling in your own story and referring to yeah they move the conversation out of abstraction. Right. And I think that's the way that people justify the death penalty or other injustices. It's an abstraction. It's out there. It doesn't really affect me. But when you have people telling stories yeah. where they're intimately involved with this and they oppose right. the death penalty, right. it seems to me like it's transformative.
1: Right. Well, we, we can win the death penalty on just about any place where you want to put the argument. I mean, we can win the argument. I mean, because if you want to argue it on the level of abstraction, if you want to argue it on the grounds of um, Mm -hmm. criminology, you know, when people say the death penalty has a deterrent effect or the death penalty keeps people, somehow protects law enforcement officers, and you say, and you look at every law enforcement officer who's gotten killed on the job and you say, well, I guess it doesn't work very well, if that's (laughs) what it is. Or you can look at the statistics for homicide and say that police officers are no safer in New Hampshire than they are in Maine or Vermont or Massachusetts. that have abolished the death penalty long ago, and we don't have a safer place for police officers than they do. Or, you know, there's no statistical evidence that abolishing the death penalty makes people less safe or that having a death penalty makes people more safe. And if there was, if that actually worked, we would be able to measure it, and there isn't. But that doesn't necessarily affect, as you say, that doesn't necessarily affect the debate.
0: Well, I mean, I guess that's part of my point. Yeah. What you're saying is makes rational sense, but people who are in favor of the death penalty, you're not really dealing on a rational level. But, so how but do you Their reach ability them? Right. to, to uh, abstract yes. the argument and sort of put themselves at one remove from from the reality of it. Uh, I think is a critical part, and storytelling overcomes
1: that. We've had a number of, again, our storytellers are people like Ray Dodge, who was the chief of police in Marlborough, New Hampshire. And Ray Dodge can tell a story and say, look, I know a lot of people who have committed terrible crimes, and I can tell you that they're motivated by impulse, they're motivated by anger. They're motivated by something. Or if, they're mo- or if, they, if they are rational, uh, they think they're going to get away with it. <laughs> so that saying that something is deterrent is just not going to work. Right. Now, when Ray Dodge says that, it has more impact than when I tell that story. So, you know, or when, um, when Phil McLaughlin, who is the attorney general, tells the story of being the attorney general and having to make the decision about whether to charge someone with a capital offense or not. In the position that that puts someone in or other people who have been prosecutors tell the story of what it's like to prosecute
0: a homicide. Well, and that uh, reminds me, different. it was either in your blog or on the website, Yeah, two former New Hampshire attorneys general changed their mind, who were supportive of the death penalty, changed their mind. Is that I don't know that, I mean, we've had a couple
1: of attorneys general, Phil McLaughlin and uh, Greg, Greg's. I'm going to forget his name, but, um, but they have testified. I don't know that they ever changed their mind exactly, but their, their minds were formed by this, and they are against, against the death penalty. So, and other people, the former you know, deputy uh, commissioner of the Department of Corrections, who, while he was in office, couldn't speak up, but once he retired, <laughs> joined the board of the coalition to abolish wow. the death penalty. Now, this was the guy whose part of his job was to figure out, how are we going to execute Michael Addison? If it comes to that, if we have to do that.
0: And at least one of these attorney and, generals said that the reason for his changing his mind had to do with the racial bias. Of the that's and right.
1: That's right. Again, you can't, again, if you look at the statistics, it's interesting. The statistics show that it's actually the race of the victim that makes the most difference. That killing a white person, you are much more likely to get charged with and convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death than if you kill a person of color. Now, if you kill, and if you are a person of color, you are more likely than a white person to be charged with capital right. murder right. and sentenced to death. Right. And sometimes it's both figures are operating. So again, and that's one of the reasons why, again, we can say the death penalty is not a fair system, and we can, we can do without it. It doesn't, it doesn't, David, it doesn't do anything. Right. And that's that's what right. I, that's is one of the things I've learned from doing this. It's like I start out with a moral perspective. I I work for the Quakers. You know, it's like, okay, we're against killing. Like, what else do we need to say? You know? It's like, that's really enough. It's like, okay, that's convinced. All right, we're convinced. But the more that I worked on this year after year after year after year and looked at it as a matter of public policy, not just a matter of moral policy, but as a matter of public policy, the death penalty doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't work. It doesn't do the things that its backers say that it does. Right. So... Let's get rid of it. Yeah. So that's kind of where it is. But, but you're right. It's the stories, though, that is what gets through to people. Yeah, yeah. That's the you, you, thing. Yeah, that's, what, that's what's happened.
0: One of the other things I thought we might talk about is coalition building. Yeah. Um, you work with the Quaker Friends Service Committee, uh, and uh, I'm quite familiar with the Unitarian Universal Service Committee. Yeah. And often these two committees uh, work hand in hand. Yeah
1: probably agree on most things. Virtually
0: everything, I think, probably. But if you look
1: across the theological spectrum, you see a pretty wide variation. So it's very interesting. So your thoughts about that. So it's very interesting that the entity that played the greatest role in bringing us together back in 1997 and 1998, and the story that I told, was the New Hampshire Council of Churches. And the New Hampshire Council of Churches, which is what we call the mainstream churches, and so it's the it's the Lutherans, the Methodists, the United Church of Christ. At that time, the Catholics, right. the Unitarians, yeah. the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, a couple of <laughs> others. Um, this was one of the few places where it was easy for them to say we all agree, because there's a lot of things they don't agree yeah. about. <laughs> Absolutely, in terms of theology and in right. terms of public policy. But right. when it came to the death penalty, when the question was raised there back in 1997 or 1998, they said, yeah. We're against the death penalty. Let's work to abolish it. And they became the entity that convened and hosted and sponsored the New Hampshire Coalition to abolish the death penalty until the coalition was strong enough to kind of go off on its own as an independent nonprofit corporation. But that's an interesting thing. And still, to this day, they have continued to have this as one of their relatively small number of issues on their agenda and one of the ones that's most specific. So, uh, and that's an interesting, and that's an interesting thing. And they can say, yes, the people from all these different groups uh, agree with each other about this. Yeah, and, that's, that's, and that's helpful. And that's, and that's unusual. And yeah, if you're outside that world, you don't realize how unusual it is. But if you're inside that world...
0: Oh, that's a- now. You also mentioned in an email that you've had some unusual, shall we say, strange bedfellows as part of the well, coalition. Well, I would say that one of the reasons why we have been
1: successful in New Hampshire is that, in addition to what we could call the, you know, most of the liberals. Um, yep. And most of the people who support civil rights and civil liberties, it's again, the fact that the ACLU, of course the ACLU is against the death penalty. And, of course, Amnesty International is against the death penalty in addition to the churches. And that's kind of where, in a sense, but where this movement starts. But uh, the Roman Catholic Church is solidly against the death penalty. And people who are Roman Catholic and right to life believe in life from womb to tomb as they say and many of them are with us in the movement to abolish the death penalty Uh, or take a look at the libertarian element in New Hampshire Uh, people who believe in in guns and property in wanting the government off their back in all things. Well, a lot of the libertarians, and I would say that the liberty, well, there's not a libertarian party that's of right. any significance, but people who are part of the free state movement or people who really, whose ideology is kind of closer to the libertarians than, say, to Wall Street, um, they, by and large, are against the death penalty. And as, as, as our friend Rennie likes to say... Uh, if you don't trust the government to plow your snow or educate your children, <laughs> <laughs> how can you trust the government to implement, to fairly implement a judicial process that could actually lead to somebody losing their life with no ability to remedy that if you decide later on that a mistake has been made? So again, some of the stories that have been most effective for us, especially in reaching conservatives, have been the stories of people who were accused of crimes they did not commit, were tried, were convicted, were sentenced to death, and spent, in many cases, years on death row in different states until finally, whether it was through DNA evidence, or in some case, there was a story, I forget the man's name, but he told us a story about the evidence uh, was in a paper bag in the judge's closet. And it was evidence that had never been brought forward to trial, had never been presented to his defense counsel, and when it finally came out, it was like, okay, he didn't do it. So there are stories like that. Or people who, uh, Sabrina Butler, who says she was 17 years old. Uh, she was accused of murdering her own baby. Um, she was given, I believe, a real estate lawyer to represent her. Well, that's good. A, a black, A black woman, a young black woman in Mississippi with a real estate lawyer representing her on a, Capital murder death penalty charge and she gets found guilty and sentenced to death. They do an autopsy on the baby and Later on at some point they it's revealed that the baby died of natural causes She didn't choke the baby to death or whatever it was she was accused of but that doesn't come out until years later so when there is a bill to make to add killing of a child under the age of 12 or something like that, to make that a capital crime. And we bring Sabrina Butler up, and she tells her story of being the mom of a baby who dies. And she is accused of the murder that she didn't do. Well, that has an impact on the legislators who, by and large, these are our volunteer New Hampshire citizen legislators. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, they've they've all got ideologies, and they've all got political affiliations and such. But when it comes down to it, most of them are capable of hearing a story and responding to it with some combination of common sense and compassion and listening to it and saying, okay, that makes sense. And year after year after year of listening to these stories, we've been able to move enough legislators to the point where we think that this could be the year that New Hampshire says goodbye to the death penalty.
0: Well, this is a program about stories and storytelling. So as we kind of get close to the close yeah. here, how do you go about crafting a story? Do you write stories out? Do you memorize them? Do you create notes for yourself? Do you do it at the same time or the di- same way each time or differently? What's your approach to
1: I guess I start by just sort of telling the story to myself in little pieces as I'm driving, as I'm walking, uh, you know, whenever it might be. And then at some point I'll, I'll take notes. Sometimes I do write things out, and then, but I, I worry sometimes that if I do that, I'll end up reading instead of right. telling. So right. I try right. not to, if it's a forum like this, I try not to do that. If it's something, mm-hmm. uh, if, I'm, if I'm supposed to be giving a lecture... It might include stories as part of it, but particularly if I'm worried about time limits, I might I might write it all out. We'll see. You know, it's <laughs> it's different. So you, but I necessarily... think I've gotten better at it over the years too. I mean, partly from listening to other people, listening to good preachers, <laughs> listening to good storytellers. I've got. I think I've gotten to be a better public speaker too by applying myself to that. Well,
0: thank you so much for telling your story and yeah. sharing this conversation together. This brings us to the end of our conversation with Arnie Alpert. Again, thank you so much. Your stories were incredibly moving. Um, And for all of you in the audience and at home watching on or listening on SoundCloud, uh, we appreciate your being here and we appreciate your work, as I would say, on the side of the angels. For more information about the American Friends Service Committee in New Hampshire, you can browse to the website afsc.org slash office slash concord n h and we'll put that on the uh, ribbon at the bottom. <clears throat> and this brings us to the end of our program. Our thanks to the True Tales live team, Amy Antonucci, Steve Koval, John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, and Sam Adams, and also to the entire PPMTV production crew. As a reminder, as Amy said, we now have our own True Tales Live e-newsletter. We call it True Tales Times. And it provides information about upcoming shows and workshops and occasional regional storytelling events. You can sign up on our website, truetaleslivenh.org. And our next show is June 25th on the theme of Heroes. Our next free workshop, absolutely free, June 4th from 7.30 to 9 p.m., here at PPM TV, and if you are considering telling a story, we encourage you to attend a workshop, and at the same time, understand that coming to a workshop does not pre-commit you to telling a story, so you're not locked in that way. It's a great way for newbies and veteran storytellers to get some good, useful feedback. To sign up to tell a story, email us at truetaleslivenh1 at gmail.com. My name is David Franer, here with Marnie Albert. Thank you so much and good night.